Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Friday, May the 26th. Um, very special, very special pod for the guys, or uh, as I am now talking to Brendan Kelly, JD, uh, want to do a little shout out. There you go. Congratulations to our uh, esteemed co-host who is, as of last week, um, a Juris Doctor. We are uh, very, very proud here at, at a gentleman's disagreement. How does it feel in the law school? Well, uh, I appreciate it. It's funny, Ricky. It's always when you have these milestones, it's the time of reflection. And, and it's funny thinking about like reflecting on the podcast in context of my law school career. As we started this when I was heading into law school, almost almost three years ago now and i remember being like i don't know that this is the right time to start this i've heard law school is pretty pretty challenging uh but look at us look at us we, we've gotten this far and it's yeah i got the jd down and we're still going which is not necessarily what i would have anticipated so it's been it's been a good run uh, um, for me personally and for us together yeah well i mean credit to you the timing was not impeccable i will say but uh, you had soldiered through. And actually, I should note for the people that that he is a, a dual degree recipient of a uh, Master of Public Administration as well from Suffolk University. So uh, a very now he's got all the degrees. So, <laughs> um, yeah, Ricky had me outgunned on uh, graduate degrees for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Then he went and got two and, and now he's one up on me. But uh, enough about us. Um, we have, I think, something very special for the folks this weekend to to head lead you right into Memorial Day. So why don't you tell them who we're talking to? Yeah, well, first of all, happy Memorial Day to everyone out there. Hope that everyone has a great weekend, but a particular shout out to the veterans who listen, the veterans in all of our lives, you know, the people that have it's, it's obviously a weekend a time for remembering a lot of fa- fallen soldiers who have who have given like the you know the the last full measure for um, our country and the things that we believe in and one of those things that we believe in is freedom of expression and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today we are incredibly lucky this week we're joined by Dr. Bertha Madras who is a professor at Harvard University. We'll give her a fuller bio when she comes on, but she came to our attention because last month she, along with another doctor at Harvard, Dr. Steven Pinker, penned an article in the Boston Globe about a new venture that they were starting at Harvard, which was the Council on Academic Freedom. We'll obviously discuss this in, in far greater depth when Dr. Matters joins us, but the Council an overview of the council is that it's devoted to quote, free inquiry, intellectual diversity and civil discourse. And they have faculty from all of the Harvard schools from all across the 
gender, racial, ideological perspectives. And so they're coming together with the goal of ensuring that academic freedom continues to thrive at Harvard and hopefully at other campuses and institutions of, of higher learning across the country. So it's super excited for the conversation. It's definitely a critical one. And it feels almost appropriate on, on Memorial Day where you have all of these people that have sacrificed so much to allow people like me and us to have these freedoms that we're going to have a conversation while not in the context of of war, in the context of like, we need to also work to ensure that everything that people have gone before us that have done for us, that we're continuing to ensure that those freedoms still exist for us and for the future in our country. Yeah. No, I, I'm really looking forward to this one. We're going to bring Dr. Matters on shortly, but before we do, a quick reminder to everybody, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables in Destin, Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. You know, Ricky, it's, it seems like the seasons are changing. It feels like summer is in the air. And maybe you want to go out and change some of the wood furnishings in your house just to spruce things up. Oh, snuck that one in there. I like it. All right. We are now thrilled to welcome Dr. Bertha Madras to the program. Um, Dr. Madras is a professor of psychobiology at the Harvard Medical School, where she directs the laboratory of addiction. She also directs the laboratory of addiction neurobiology at McLean Hospital, That laboratory focused on translational research, neurobiology of therapeutic and addictive substances, brain imaging, and medications development. Her current research focuses on the behavioral and molecular consequences of drugs introduced to adolescent primates and whether these responses differ in adults. She is the recipient of 19 U.S. and 27 international patents with collaborators, so no big deal. But then transitioning into education, Dr. Madras developed the first addictions course for Harvard Medical School students, and she created the Cell Biology of Addiction course at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. In public policy, Dr. Madras served as a deputy director for demand reduction at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, which is an appointment, uh, presidential appointment, where she was confirmed unanimously by the U.S. Senate. In 2017, she was appointed by President Trump to a six-member commission on combating drug addiction and opioid crisis. She's the recipient of the National Institute of Health Merit Award, the National Institute of Drug Abuse Public Service Award, the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry Founders Award, and others. In 2006, the Better World Report cited her brain imaging invention as one of 25 technology transfer innovations that changed the world. So, uh, Dr. Madras, thank you. That's just a very brief bio, but thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to discuss this. I must say this is the first interview that I've had um, that I've agreed to on the uh, uh, Council of Academic Freedom. And the reason I have shunned away from it is because I am not an expert on academic freedom. I've been sheltered all my life away in a lab speaking to scientists about neurobiology and so I feel a little bit um, un, uh, un, un, undereducated in this topic, but I'll do my best. We're not worried about you being undereducated <laughs> here. But the, so, again, the reason why we have Dr. Madras on is to discuss the, the Council of Academic Freedom, which she helped create over at Harvard recently. And Ricky and I were talking, Dr. Madras, 
one of the things I think stood out to both of us was exactly what you just said is that you're a doctor. And so why, why did you feel it was necessary as someone that works really in the medical school? And as you just said, like in labs for most of your time to be at the forefront of creating this council. I think it's because it can affect every one of us in every single discipline in a university, including in medicine. Um, for example, and, and I know that I will ruffle feathers, but some of the medical journals now, in fact, some of the very highly cited and high quality ones are compelling people to use uh, persons who are pregnant instead of pregnant women. Uh, in terms of language regulation, it does affect all of us. It affects every single discipline. In fact, on the council, there are 15 people within the faculty of medicine. Um, there are, um, and that includes surgery as well of medicine. There are 12 biologists. There are four people in, in computer science. Uh, five people in engineering. So even though the topic may seem within the domain of law, political science, ethics, philosophy, there are a number of people who are extremely um, interested in this That because they're concerned for the future, not only of our culture, but also for science itself. I think that's a really interesting point, you know, particularly on the policing of, of language. But, you know, to kind of bring it back to your specific field, which has in many ways, you know, scientific truths, things that are factually accurate and not. I'm wondering how in in that from the sort of scientific perspective, how you think about speakers who may bring forth, uh, you know, information that is not really true in terms of how either they're connecting dots um, and, and how you think about that? It's a very important question. And one has to think about how settled science is in general. Uh, there are certain branches of science, such as mathematics and physics, in which the variables can be regulated very tightly, in which the accuracy is so exquisite that one can say that the earth revolves around the sun 365 days a year and almost never be questioned on that statement of fact. There are many other areas of science that are not that cut and dry. And there are many areas of science in which the science is never settled because every single layer of the onion you peel, there are other layers and layers and layers. There are many... Um, dogmas that I learned about when I started as a graduate student that are risible at this point because they no longer hold. So it, we can't think of science as quantal. Science is truth and accuracy and all the other disciplines are <clears throat> fuzzy and open-ended. Science also has many, many areas in which uh, one can dispute and debate not necessarily the data, but how to interpret it. So just jumping off that, one of the things that stood out in the article written by Professor Pinker and, and yourself is uh, this line that says, quote, the only way that our species has managed to learn and progress is by a process of conjecture and refutation. Some people venture ideas, other probe whether they are sound, and in the long run, better ideas prevail, close quote. And I think that goes to what you were just saying, where this idea of 
whether it was in higher education or politics or just in democracy, for a long time, it seemed like the marketplace of ideas prevailed. That seems less and less the case, really on both sides in, in recent years. Any thoughts on why that has, like, that idea has seemingly fallen out of fashion? I think one of the reasons it's falling out of fashion, but I don't think it's re- irreversible. I certainly think it's reversible is, first of all, we have to recognize that these debates on freedom of speech are not new. They're ancient. Um, in uh, 1600, the poet John Donne made a plea for freedom of speech. That was, you know, 400 years ago. Uh, John Stuart Mill debated the concept of free speech and why it is so critical to have it. In our country, we had many periods and episodes where free speech was not really, even though it was protected in the First Amendment in terms of what the federal government can do, it still was not protected in terms of what words you could use, um, what, uh, you know, if you could use expletives in the media and so on and so forth. So it's not as if we are just uh, recognizing that we are in a downward slide in terms of this debate. This debate is an unending, open-ended debate that has resurfaced a number of times, both in world history and in the history of the United States. Yeah, that's really interesting. Ricky and I talk a lot about like pendulums where things swing one way and then they swing back hard the other way and then people kind of course correct. And I think Ricky will probably want to follow up on that at, at some point. But I, I got um, another question here, another line from from the article where this, again, goes with what you were saying, where the article says, quote, to start with, the very concept of freedom of expression is anything but intuitively obvious, which is like one of those really interesting lines, because Dr. Patterson, as you alluded to, like, we always think of, like, freedom of speech. That's a core tenet of being an American. But at the same time, the article goes on to say what is intuitively obvious is that the people who disagree with us are spreading dangerous falsehoods and must be silenced for the greater good. And that seems, like, way more core to just people of, of like, being protective of against, like, the, the you know, Darwinian, like, protect yourself against things that you think are different or dangerous. Yes, yes. I mean, John Stuart Mill, he, 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 he quoted, but everyone has his or own notions of what speech is dangerous or worthless or plain wrong and, and undeserving of protection. And, you know, um, another, I mean, Nate Hentoff said, uh, he wrote a book called Free Speech for Me, but not for thee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, you know, what we have seen over the over the ages is that uh, very often people who um, want free speech for themselves uh, and will not, and, and and certainly will not suppress free speech that agrees with their yeah. own particularly view, particular views, will in fact try to suppress the speech of others in which they disagree. And yeah. I think that's basically what's happening now. Um, it's an activist movement. It may it does not seem to represent the majority view. It is uh, by far the majority of the vocals who are uh, trying to impose this on society. In academia, uh, the job of administrators and deans and presidents is try to keep things, uh, try to keep a campus calm, and 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 not um, not exacerbate uh, passions 
and try to reduce the uh, reduce the hype. And so I think that in some ways, um, what I call the uncourageous administrators have caved because, it, you know, for the sake of trying to maintain some decorum on campus, they've caved to the activists and just um, they've de-escalated by allowing the most vocal people to have their say and not listening to the majority. I think that that's something that we talk about a lot. I mean, particularly in, in politics, sort of the loudest uh, voices in the room being the ones that get heard, but everyone else seeming to try and keep their heads down and not not get yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, this survey, which was just published in the Crimson, said that 76% of surveyed faculty say they believe academic freedom is under threat in America. Only 11% disagreed. Now, that says something extremely important. That's why we have 126 people who joined the council. And the vast majority of them, the vast majority are endowed chairs, which means they are the elite of the elite. Uh, 91 have endowed chairs and only a handful of people who are unprotected, which means they don't have tenure, they're not full professors, only a handful have joined. And they've probably, there would be a lot more if they didn't live in fear. Yeah. I I, I want to get back to sort of the idea of the responsibilities of the institutions, Harvard, other, you know, any other university in this case, obviously the preservation of academic freedom here being, I think, paramount. But on the, on the other side, I think there is, there, there can be a recognition that college students are impressionable. So what is kind of the, the, the responsibility of the university, if it, if on the one hand to allow and to protect the rights of students to bring voices that they want to hear but to have those voices potentially not be one-sided, like how does the university kind of navigate that? Well, I think the university has to show much greater resolve in terms of protecting ideas that are not fashionable. We have to recognize that everything that we do now in our culture will be considered obsolete, perhaps 50, 100 years from now. Many things that young people believe or faculty believe now may not stand the test of time. And in order for it to be examined, to be weighed, to be debated, to understand the the, the value and relevance of, of certain ideas, we have to have the voices that 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 are contrary to what is the conventional wisdom now, in, in terms of the majority conventional wisdom. And the administration has to have the backbone, the spine to uphold these values, because if they don't, the most vocal people, the squeaky wheels will get uh, and suppress uh, a free exchange of ideas. And that is completely contrary to what the mission of a, of a university is. What worries me the most is in this uh, survey that was published in the Crimson just um, yesterday is that 57% of the faculty respondents agree that Harvard should give controversial speakers a platform, 
even when faculty or students object to their views. So the majority said yes. But why isn't that 100%? And the reason it isn't 100% is that the other 43%, 20% disagreed, more than 20%, is that the others actually do not accept the idea that there are ways of interpreting and viewing the world that are contrary to their own beliefs. That is frightening. Yeah. Or perhaps they were worried that they would, that, you know, these speakers could be disruptive. But that too is a surmountable problem. Because if there are no consequences to disruption, the disruption will continue. If there are consequences to disruption, uh, the disruptions will be far fewer and far less uh, verbal and, and activist. Yeah, Dr. Reyes, I'm sure you're aware that there was a big incident at Stanford Law School back in March. Yes. And the dean over at Stanford Law School, Jennifer Martinez, came out with this letter. She apologized to the judge that was invited, that was heckled and shouted down and not allowed to speak at Stanford. And she apologized and wrote really in it in my opinion, a very impressive letter to the Stanford community explaining exactly why she felt it was necessary to have speakers like this on campus. And the, the conclusion of the letter says, quote, thus, I believe that the strong protection for freedom of speech is a bedrock principle that ultimately supports diversity, equity, inclusion, and that we must do everything in our power to ensure that it endures. And so I thought that this is kind of a great example of exactly what you're talking about, about the administration. I I, I would bet that she does not agree with the judge and some of his views that were coming, but she's going to stand up for his right to come and speak. Absolutely. You know, the um, the death of the president of the University of Chicago, President Zimmer, uh, was also eulogized recently because he, he issued a letter, a statement on this is a university that's going to uphold the principles of free speech. And um, we are not going to be subjected to um, concerns about being triggered or being uh, hurt by words. Um, and apparently his letter is distributed to incoming classes every year. And I think that that's, that is the kind of resolve, that is the kind of backbone and the kind of courage that I uh, I, I really would love to see in every single uh, president of every academic institution in our in our nation. Our nation really is the forefront of freedom of speech. It is freer than almost every other nation in terms of press, in terms of individual liberties, and we have to maintain that because the alternatives. The suppression of speech, the suppression of ideas, gives rise to totalitarian states. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, second it. The yeah. I, I that also reminds me of in uh, Cornell recently um, was uh, their student body sort of passed a resolution that said we're we're asking or requiring that all professors provide trigger warnings and allow students to sort of. St- to opt out of content that they might find objectionable. Um, the uh, the pre- I, I'm, I don't I don't want to misquote, but I, I believe it was the president of the university there came back and said we can't accept this because of how you know it's going to impede the ability for professors to teach the content that they want 
to teach. So I think this kind of reminds me in, in not reminds me, but I guess evokes two questions. One, do you feel like we've reached an inflection point and now the tide may be turning where professors, institutions, uh, school, you know, boards and bodies are being, are, are less afraid now to, to stick up for academic freedom, even if it means bringing to the four voices that we don't, uh, that we're not interested in. Well, I I can speak only for our institution, and that is I am thrilled that the Council of Academic Freedom launched. And um, after we were about 40-odd people, after the letter was published in the Boston Globe, um, we've had an an additional 76 people or 86 people join. Um, And so... And as I said, most of these are, are endowed chairs, which means they are the elite of the elite of the university in terms of faculty. I think it is critical for this movement to continue. I think there are signs that there is a growing dissatisfaction with what uh, these threats, uh, which have been coming from the left and right, uh, to academic freedom. And I do think that it is absolutely um, a sign that there are some universities where the backbone is surfacing. Harvard, I hope, is a driver for this because uh, there's a great deal of thoughtfulness that's being g- given in terms of what the mission statement is of the council, what issues we're going to engage in, and also, and this is really critical, is data. Um, you know, getting accurate data on what's happening is very important because a lot of the um, information that is being touted in the press may or may not give us the full picture. And it's really important. Uh, One of the things that I recommended to the council is gathering data on why people want to suppress the speech of others. You know, the fact that they are triggered, the fact that they're uncomfortable is, is obviously how they will answer it or the, or that the fact that they do not accept the premises of another individual. But I think it is important to excavate deeper into that issue of why they don't want to hear somebody that opposes them. It's as if they don't want to hear a, an opposition to to almost a quasi-religious belief rather than an opposition to a scholarly idea, a scholarly set of data, a scholarly set of conclusions. That's really interesting. I, I want to stick with Harvard actually for a minute because in some ways, and you allude, Dr. Pinker alluded to this in the article, that Harvard is one of one where you would kind of think that academic freedom is in some ways like least threatened at Harvard because professors all across the spectrum are always going to want to teach there. Students all across the spectrum are always going to want to go there. And so obviously you and Professor Baker work at Harvard, but why else do you think it was important to have the academic council at Harvard? I think it's, it's really important because um, if you actually look at the breakdown of faculty, 32% say they're very liberal, 45% identifies liberal, 20% is moderate. Just a little over 2% are conservative and less than 1% are very conservative. 
Now, when you have a breakdown like that, any, any, any ideas that are contrary to either mainstream or extreme liberal ideas, um, are, are going to be considered outside the boundaries of, of scholarly thoughts. I think that I'm very concerned by this breakdown, frankly, because half the country is conservative, the other half is liberal, and the conservatives make as much of an important case as to why they are as liberals do, and yet... um you know, the faculty does not represent the spectrum of ideas that are current in, in modern American society. Wow, that that's surprising to me. And I want to follow up on that. But so I, as I mentioned to you, Dr. Myers, I just graduated from Suffolk Law School last week. We had a panel with uh, Nadine Strassen, who was the former head of the ACLU, the first female head of the ACLU last year. And one of the things that she was saying, and we also had a professor at Suffolk and she was saying that like she's been saying the same things for 40 years it's at first when she was doing this in the 80s she was fighting people on the right and now she's doing it in the 2020s she's fighting people on the left like the professor that joined the panel he was uh, he's an asian um an asian american a liberal professor and he said when i was there in the 80s it was all not all but overwhelmingly white males who are conservative and he was like man we really need to diversify our faculty he's like now i look around unless you are a minority already a woman a liberal you have no shot of getting hired these days and he's like i feel like i'm saying and now he was getting criticized by all the old white guys in in the 80s and i was getting criticized for all from like the diverse the, the left and in the 2020s he's like i haven't changed in in 40 years and so i'd be curious from your perspective you've been at harvard i believe 37 years like how have you seen a similar type change well, I've seen certainly a similar change in terms of um, trying to um, um, trying to diversify both the faculty and the students, and in obviously, in, in, if Harvard considers itself a, as a global a player in in uh, scholarly research and academia, it is important to recognize that um, there are people from all over the world that merit a, a post uh, within the community. To actively exclude white males, to me, is a travesty. You know, to almost make that a non-entry-level criteria. Uh, because what I would love to see, above all, is merit. Um, literally, uh, to choose people on the basis of merit. Um, and obviously, there are meritorious people from all over Asia, from Africa, from South America, from every part of the world. But if um, merit is the criteria, that should be the number one criteria. And, not, and from my perspective, um, you know, affirmative action has, has certainly given opportunities to people who would not have had them in the past. I think it's, it has, uh, done a, a very important, um, contribution. But I think in terms of faculty, in terms of grants, scientific grants, I think in terms of, um, uh, publication of papers, it should be blinded in terms of what a person looks like and based on the quality of their work. Yeah, I mean, again, couldn't agree more. La last question for you is there's one line 
in yeah, the I, I have one, just one last anecdote, I must say. I was subject to um, what I, I would call censorship when I was a student at McGill. I was a, a, a very young undergraduate at McGill. And when I heard of the riots in, in Soweto, Southwest, um, um, in, in, this, in this, sorry, Soweto in South Africa, uh, in 1960, so I'm a hundred years old, so that dates me. Um, I was, uh, I was an editor, an editor, women's editor, sports editor of the McGill Daily. So I knew how to exercise my, uh, my free speech. And I decided to hold a rally on campus in protest, in, in protest against the crackdown on the rioters and also in support of these rioters in apartheid South Africa. Uh, I organized a rally. I ordered a megaphone. I put in a large ad in the McGill Daily so that people would congregate on the steps of, of Red Path Hall. And the next morning, I woke up energized with all the facts and information, and every single poster was down. I was refused the megaphone and my big article, which I had sent to press at 11 o'clock the night before, was just a blank white sheet, a blank white um, piece of the newspaper. I was censored for upholding the rights of people to express themselves in apartheid South Africa. And I, I'll, I'll never forget that moment in my life because I was probably 16 years old at the time and never, and nobody ever urged me to do this. It was just spontaneous after reading a, the, an article on it. And then I realized a lifelong uh, of a lesson how important it is to allow people to express themselves. Yeah, that's, I mean, Sorry that happened to you, but like really cool that 60 years later, you're still crusading for the exact same ideals. Um, yeah. Well, and of course, I have found out later why all this happened. It, it, there was a lot of investment in South Africa. Well, that's... Nobody wanted to rock the investment boat. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, I know I know you have to run, but one final question for you. There's a line in the article that says, quote, if we don't defend academic freedom, we should not be surprised when politicians try to do it for us or a disgusted sinistry writes us off. Both of those things are happening, but I, I want to focus on, on the former, where clearly in Florida with under Governor DeSantis, but we've seen it across the country. I believe that there are 34 current bills in 20 states. It's already been passed in Florida and North Dakota. It's being considered in Oklahoma and Texas. And when you see that, this is where, Ricky, we talk about the pendulum swing too hard the other way, where this is, even though these people are quote unquote, like trying to protect free speech, they're swinging it so hard the other way that now they're limiting the speech of the other side. And so Dr. Matters, if you just want to touch on that of why you feel like now is really important for people like you and the council to do the work that you're doing. It is critical because um, having worked in Washington, I am too familiar with politics, I, I, I think in terms of of that level. And we must not let politicians interfere with academia. I think there are things in public schools and in, in K to 12 that could be considered uh, problematic in terms of curriculum, 
And from that point of view, I think it's really important to look at the accuracy, the greater social good of what's being done. I think there is room for tremendous improvement in curriculum and in, in K to 12. But once we get into higher education, I think it is so important for the, for academia not to become a venue for politicians as it has, as it became in totalitarian states, in the Nazi regime, in the communist system, in China, in Russia, in Cuba, everywhere, politicians have interfered with academia in terms of what, in terms of expression, in terms of exploration. The Lysenko uh, sordid story in, in Russia is still has reverberations today and cost millions of lives because politicians decided to favor one scientist who was a, essentially a crackpot over, uh, over truth. So we have to be, we have to guard this freedom on both sides of the spectrum, on all sides of the spectrum for now and into the future. Well, that's a beautiful way to end. Um, Dr. Maris, this was phenomenal. Thank you. I said to Ricky, even before you came on, I was like, I think we're, like if we had, we could talk to, we could talk about this stuff and talk to you for hours, but thank you so much for your time. Like we greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Bye. This is it. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. That was all on our end. That was awesome. <laughs> wow, that was uh, that was really incredible. There's, I, I like, as she was speaking, even you know, in the, in the brief moments that we've had after after she signed off, there's just so much to unpack there. Um, I think. You just, I mean, in, in just hearing, oh, obviously first, incre- incredibly eloquent in terms of just how uh, off the cuff she was able to put some of this stuff together. It was very, uh, it was sort of a masterclass to, to, to watch and appreciate, but it also got me thinking, of course, as, as, uh, as these conversations tend to, and um, there, there were a couple of things. So I'm going to, I'll throw, I'll throw them out at you and you, you let me know where you want to start. Um, I think one thing that, that was sort of the subtext of a lot of what she was saying is, is this idea that we are out here censoring and canceling people, but really the question is like, shouldn't we be trying to divorce the actual people from the ideas? And then we should, if we disagree with an idea or a premise, we should be attacking like that's that should be the focus. Yep. What is the content and how do we agree and or disagree with it? And she asked this question, like, you know, why are we, you know, we have to ask ourselves why we want to censor certain people and the sort of the easy answer as well, the things that they say trigger us or they make us uncomfortable. But she was, I think she was really trying to elude it, but like, but, but what is, Okay, but then, you know, but then what? Why is that a good enough reason to to sort of silence that entirely? And I think there's a little bit of the idea of because we're afraid of the appeal of this. We don't believe in it, but we can see how other people would believe in it. And so we're scared to let that be out there, whether it's, you know, controversial issues on gender identities or on um yeah, any sort of political views or 
you know, what have you, I think there's this idea that we are afraid that people will be convinced of things that we believe to be untrue. But that is the very essence of academic freedom. That is exactly what you guys were talking about with the marketplace of ideas of these sort of like, we allow that to be, to exist in that space. And then the cream will rise to the, to, to the top. I, th- I yeah, thought, yeah, no, stop. I want to hop in there. Great. That, that's a, it's a great point. And I think, I think that's really true of, of the, fear of allowing other ideas that disagree with you. And we, we talked about that in, uh, from like our Darwinian perspective is that we think that we believe in free speech, but free speech is a little bit scary and it feels a little bit dangerous when people are out there saying things that we don't agree with and other people seem to agree with. And so our, our natural instinct is to try to silence it. And you have to work, you have to actively work to overcome that. And I think that's what she's saying is that we... What because we have such a, a small group of people that are actively working against that idea, it, it does take people, the silent majority, whatever you want to call it, to stand up and be like, no, we have we have to stand up to this. And Ricky, I just reached over my desk. One of my debate students gave me this um, last year, and it says everything is debatable. And like I really believe that. And some things could be wrong. Like you could take a, a wildly wrong position that we know is just like really not correct. But then prove me wrong, right? Don't don't just dismiss me, shut me down. And it says it in the in the article. They say that uh, people today are quick to label other others as dangerous. You label them as racist, sexist, transphobic, which the article says we rightly as a society abhor those things. But when when you when someone just doesn't agree with you, and then you're like, well, you're a racist, like you're a transphobe, and it's like, well, can we, can we talk about it? And and if you're so right, then then prove me wrong. And I think that's. So many people these days, and we always talk like this this rise of like safe spaces, and it's been parodied in so many places. But it, it, it all comes in a basis of reality of people not wanting to engage in ideas and think that like, in, if you're so right, then, then prove that you're right. Yeah, yeah, and 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 this this idea that we can actually protect people by limiting the information that they take in, right? Like. I I've we've talked about kind of the idea of, you know, what is the purpose of an education of a a school, higher education? Like, obviously, there are specific things that you need to learn. But beyond that, it's way more how to learn learn and how to critically think than what to think. the, The notion that we could be that we can like support institutions that say that no, you have to think this way is completely antithetical to how we think about the university system. And I thought it was, I thought, I thought you asked a great question around like, you know, why Harvard? And I didn't, I mean, I, obviously I knew there was going to be a liberal bent. I did not know that conservatives to very conservative made less than five, made up less than 5% of the faculty. And to me, obviously I'm a huge proponent of diversity. I really believe in its benefits, but it's got to go beyond right race and socioeconomic status. This idea of diversity of thought is so imp- is probably the most important thing yeah. for universities because that's what you're like like she I mean so incredibly pointed to like things that we believe that were dogmas taught to us as like unequivocal truths today we would say oh that's actually ridiculous that doesn't make any sense and but the only way is that somebody was allowed to explore okay. You're, I, I don't think that this is true, but let me figure it out. Let me, let me test this. And that's, that is 
so important. And it's, I, I think maybe like something like this coming out of a Harvard and obviously it's got to, to permeate, but um, I'm, I'm hopeful that people will realize that we do ourselves more harm than good. Even if we have, that means we have to listen to things that we find objectionable or abhorrent, whatever it is, the, the best way to combat that is to present the ideas to like hear them out and then one by one dissect the claims and, and, you know, whatever, refute them. Yeah. You said so many interesting things there. One to touch on like affirmative action for a minute. Well, I think one of the main goals of affirmative action was diversity of thought actually, and being like when we expose people to people of different genders, of different races, of different ethnicities and different sexualities, you have a broader perspective of ideas and life experiences that now we can, it broadens everyone's worldview and you come into cl- like contact with different ideas. And I feel like, as you were kind of saying, it's been, it's been boiled down to race in a lot of cases where it's like, actually, we just want to love people with like different perspectives. So because that enables us all to get, to get better. Um, also, yeah, the Harvard stuff was shocking to me. And one of the things they did mention in the article was that out of, like the free speech rankings that apparently people conduct every year. Harvard is 170th in the country out of like 203 colleges where I was, I was surprised by that. And then I guess uh, last thing, you said so many good things. I forget. I I should, I should be writing down when you say too. But one thing I will say is that you brought this up where there's a fine line here between legitimate academic debate and ideas and like hate speech. And even though I do think like hate speech can be debatable and you can bring people to campus who you can clearly prove are coming from a place of, of anger and hate. So I do think there is a line to be drawn. My problem is just when you draw that line so broadly that everyone, you label everyone a a racist, a homophobe, a transphobe, a sexist, right? And then it's like that word no longer has any meaning. And the, the few people out there that are, that, truly have those hateful beliefs or now they're just lumped in with a lot of people that have maybe have like legitimate ideas and disagreements with some of these you know, so-called like sacred cows, which is another thing I want to get back into that she said that I found fascinating. But last response to what you said, where education is about teaching people how to think. I could not agree more. I think one of the problems that conservatives have had in recent years is they feel that academia from K to 12 through higher ed has been teaching people what to think. Quite honestly, given like the breakdowns in faculty that (laughs) Dr. Madras just gave at Harvard, it's hard to argue that that's probably true. But what the problem is, is the answer to that apparently is now we're, we're going to teach you what to think. It's just going to be the opposite of what the other people are teaching. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's so frustrating to me where like, and again, if people aren't, familiar like DeSantis is now pretty much creating these colleges in Florida that he's like stacking it was like only conservative faculty and you can't teach about DEI and you can't teach about like racial history and which I know maybe I'm exaggerating slightly but it's not he's basically teaching people he's saying like what you can and cannot teach which is the exact same thing that the left has been doing for so long and that's why I think what Dr. Madras is doing and what I hope spreads to other campuses, it's got to be the people in the buildings, in the institutions that are saying, they're like, no, this is, this is not right. This is not what we're here for. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I I think the, I think just building on that a little bit, the idea 
that she said, you know, like, why, why does Harvard need to do this? Because in this moment, a lot of the policing is coming from the left censoring people who are, you know, espousing more conservative beliefs. So it is incumbent upon sort of, you know, the, the, the voice that, or the body that's in power at that time to, or at the time to, to kind of come forth and say, Hey, this is dangerous because even though we may agree that some of these, that we don't like some of the ideas that are being censored and we may prefer that people not have to hear them because of the history. And you guys did a great job of sort of seeing the pendulum swings over the years. And, and obviously, right. Like the more conservative uh, bent towards like uh, any kind of, you know, quote unquote conspiracy theories in the sixties and seventies were all coming from the left. Now they come from the right. So this idea that like where we are today is where we're going to be in 50 years. And she, again, just like such a phenomenal job, just kind of like pointing that out. Like we are constantly reconsidering things that we thought were unequivocal truths. And we are finding that they are not so much. And we are as a society, like continuing to evolve. And um, I, I thought that was, that was so cool and well said. And it just like reminds me of, I want to say Socrates, something that we learned like very early in our days in RL, which was like his like whole thing was like, the only thing that I know is that like, I know nothing. Like in the grand scheme of things, all of this knowledge that I can acquire in my lifetime is so infinitesimal in comparison to like the expanse of the universe that like, it behooves me to just not be the person who's rejecting the, rejecting ideas right? Like I should be constantly taking in ideas and considering them and exploring them and figuring out, does they make sense? Do, do they not? Do I need to learn more? Do I need to understand more? And I think in so many ways we are doing that now, we're like looking into structural racism. We're like looking into things that we hadn't looked at before, but at the same time, we cannot be shunning those ideas that are questioning our questioning. Well said. And the Socrates example is great. And this, what's the Socratic method is just asking questions to, to try to learn more and try to understand better. So two final things that I wanted to touch on. One is that when she was digging into, and we talked about this a little bit earlier of why people are uncomfortable, why people are quote triggered. She said that it was almost like a religious belief. And I think this is another argument that a lot of conservatives have made is that as religion like traditional organized religion has fallen in the United States in recent years decades what has replaced it is this rise of like this kind of civil religion of like the only sin is intolerance and that's taken over everything and I was like when she said that I was like that makes a lot of sense it's like the way a lot of people would react traditionally to like people attacking God or their conception of what what their God or gods are that's where like, I'm not even going to entertain that conversation because this is so central to my, my faith, my being like, this is who I am. And that I think has taken hold a little bit uh, on, on the left, which makes sense where it's like that same, I'm, I'm not going to even entertain conversations that I, that I feel are so central to who I am. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was a bit dramatic in the letter when it referenced like the inquisition, but in, there is a degree 
to that, right? Like, and it goes back to the, yeah, why can I not hear ideas that upset me or that I disagree with? Like, I should be able to hear them ad nauseum and know 100% like what is true for, you know, what is true and what is not, right? Like the problem is if we try and solve it by saying, no, just don't listen to it. That is really how you get the, you know, the, you know, the Donald Trumps who are saying this is the silent majority that I speak for. These are the kids that are afraid to talk on college campuses. The, you know, the guys who work in the office place that are afraid to express their views. Well, the 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 best treatment for that, the antidote is to like, yeah, go ahead and say whatever crazy thing you want to say. But let's let's dig into it. Let's figure out if it makes any sense. Like, let's figure out if after we kind of examine all like the totality of the facts that you that that argument or whatever still stands up for you. And I think rather than trying to say that you need to go preach, you know, listen to the YouTube videos in your closet, it's like, yes, there are things. Yeah. Right. Like how are, how are you, how are we ever going to convince you otherwise just telling you that you're wrong, just telling you, you need to be quiet is not doing it. And I think that's where the article starts off by saying that college and higher education is the has like suffered the greatest decline in public opinion in in recent years, which is shocking given like how, how low people think of like Congress or the Supreme Court right now. <laughs> and like college is lower than that. Uh, but I think that's what a lot of it is, is people feeling like you have these people in their traditional ivory towers that are saying that you are wrong and they that like we are right and you are wrong. And I, I think there's that's a legitimate reason why people have been turned off by higher education. Final thing that I thought was important was the way she spoke so passionately about why this is so important, about how like we need to actively be fighting for freedom of speech because it is the cornerstone of our democracy. And I think you and I can see this all over the place, what happens when we when we lose free speech in our democracy. And not only here in our country, but as she was saying, it's you know, like that classic city on a hill metaphor of like this is where freedom of speech is the most the most free in all of the world. And if we don't protect it, who will? And I thought again that you might think like, oh, that seems dramatic, but listening to her, I was like, this is really critically important. And so that that was the final takeaway I had, or like the the overall takeaway I had of, of listening, of, of getting to hear from her today. Yeah. The the line at the end of the article that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty in in so many ways is uh, is poignant and 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 perfectly said that like no matter how far we come like if we're not if we cannot rest on our laurels for for any of it and and yeah so I will, you know at the same time is that it's like it's like a little bit kind of discouraging but it's also so so hopeful that like we can as long as we at least adhere to this principle this idea that that academic freedom is what is going to lead us forward not any specific um set of ideas and that's that's really something that we can cling to i feel like yeah for sure i think that's well said uh, this was an absolute treat Thank you so much to Dr. Madras for, for joining us today. We continue to feel incredibly grateful to be joined by people like her. 
Thank you to everyone that listens. As always, if you like what you heard today, obviously you can listen to us anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify. You can also follow us on Instagram at a underscore gentleman's underscore disagreement. Um, we really appreciate it. If you, if you have any feedback, as always, feel free to reach out. But um, this Ricky, this is one of those days where I feel lucky that we get to do this because this this was just super interesting, super fun. Indeed. Till next time. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American idea friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere online, we seem to have forgotten the value of sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning lets your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share loud American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning bus I need an early morning bus there's hope behind the bluster cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and change the lion's head. Folks of different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus.